Welcome to Talking Headways, a Streets Blog podcast. I'm Tanya Snyder, editor of Streets Blog Capitol Hill at Freewheel Studios in Washington, D.C. And I'm Jeff Wood at Ruiner Studios in sunny yet windy Oakland, California. like that you, in your roundup, changed Atlanta Braves' plan $400 million entertainment district surrounding New Cobb Stadium with stupid Braves' decision. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did. And that was for a reason. I'm getting really annoyed at all these stadiums and managers of these billion, million dollar companies asking, begging taxpayers for money. It's, you know, they, they say that there's some economic impact from people going to the bars around the stadium or, you know, the sports teams, I agree, are important to a city's kind of vision of itself. But at the same time, we shouldn't have to pony up, you know, $400 million or $250 million or however much it is to build a stadium for these teams that are, you know, make millions and millions of dollars. Assuming that there are some auxiliary benefits to building a stadium, that they're taking them out of Atlanta and putting them into Cobb County. Right. Now they're planning this this mall, the article that a you... A lifestyle center. A lifestyle center. Quote, unquote. That, you know, it kind of starts with retail and dining, and then they're going to put up condos. And the the team owner said that that he insists on maintaining control of all of the development that's going to go on around there. He says, um, if you're going to go vertical outside our front door, it has to be a seamless sense of place. So he needs to maintain his control. It's like, yeah, exactly. It's, and it's like, you know, the taxpayers have nothing to do with this. They just give us a lot of money, and then we have con- complete control over this whole development setup. This is back a while ago. I guess it was in Urban Studies in college. I read some Tom Wolfe. Uh, a Man in Full, that was the name of the book. And it talked about real estate in Atlanta and all the, the hopping that was was happening where somebody would build something and then they'd hop over the, that development to build something else further out. And it, it just kind of you know brought that back. And also when I was writing my master's thesis on the politics of rail in Austin, Texas, I came across these um, Office of Technology Assessment reports from like the 60s and 70s that had a kind of a planning for mass transit. You know, the Cobb County people were the ones that didn't want the transit they didn't want those people coming into their into their county. Now I'm sure it's changed a lot since then. Now they want the benefits of development and and it taking it away from from downtown, which you know it, they just built that stadium what 17 years ago. Yeah. Um, for the Olympics, and it's crazy that you know the city's probably going to take it down. And now it's actually you know might be beneficial because they have this huge tract of land just south of downtown. But at the same time, that tract of land used to be a neighborhood, and it turned into this kind of swath of stadiums, and then now it's going to go back to a neighborhood. I guess it's the cycle of things, but um, the Braves moving outside of town is just, and not just them moving outside of town, but if they would have done it on their own, yeah, fine, but they got tons of money to do it, and that really bothers me. Well, you mentioned also that Cobb County had not wanted those people, quote-unquote, to come in via transit, and and that sentiment seems to be alive and well in this conversation as well, that they are leaving Atlanta um, in part because there wasn't enough parking around the stadium, um, and that that at least officials in Cobb County are making it clear that they want the new stadium to be designed really without much of a transit connection, that it, oh, that the, it is but... to be designed for for cars. But at the bottom of the article, it says, stay tuned for more good things on transit traffic and parking. Last week, 
Joe Dendy, chairman of Cobb County's Republican Party, okay, so it's not the entire county, um, was talking to reporters and said, it is absolutely necessary that the transportation solution is all about moving cars in and around Cobb and surrounding counties from our north and east where most Braves fans travel from and not moving people into Cobb by rail from Atlanta. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so then it's alive and well. Yeah. Fortunately. Yeah. But, so, you know, that, that that part of Cobb County, that has a lot of jobs, and it could really benefit from a transit connection to MARTA. Just saying. Well, you're going to have to go up against <laughs> Joe Dendy about that. I know. Well, I, I suppose other people in, in Atlanta are going to be doing that. So, so they're moving to Cobb County and saying that they're going to upgrade the transportation to to allow for this, I mean, what is it, like 81 home games a year? With thirty thousand people coming in, I mean the you know the kind of um, transportation upgrades that they need to do for this very occasional high density use is is potentially more road capacity than they need. And I think some people are saying that that upgrading transit is too expensive of a solution again for such occasional high density use. They're expecting everybody to drive, but <laughs> well. It's funny that you say that, the high density of people in a small window of time and a couple of times, that's kind of transit's job. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of transit's wheelhouse. Um, and also there's, you know, if they if they build it right in the right neighborhood and if they build it, you know, near a bunch of employment, then they should be building transit out there. It's silly not to. Well, that reminds me, there's a, there was a story in the San Jose Mercury News, I think it was yesterday about the 49ers. They're they're building a new stadium in Santa Clara, which is way way south of, of San Francisco. Um, but they're not going to have any Monday night football games next year because they're worried about the traffic <laughs> affected by rush hour, and nobody's going to be able to get to the game. Right, and I think in in Cobb County they're talking about um, making the games a little later to avoid yeah. rush hour. Right. Um, yeah, no, if it, you're absolutely right. If residential and job density out there warrants it, then transit makes a lot of sense. But you're absolutely right that, that moving a lot of people in a short amount of time is what transit does best. But if it's only 81 times a year, I think a lot of people would find that to be... Well, just if you just build transit to the stadium, that's, I mean, that's another expenditure that they're, they're, they're asking the county or somebody to make if it's just for that. But I think, you know, it's, it, it, if you're going to make a transit investment in that direction, it shouldn't be just for the stadium. It would be for the surrounding area and just happen to be... Um, something that connects the stadium as well. Right, and and there's been so much sprawl, especially job sprawl in Atlanta, and so much into Cobb County that it seems like it would be worth it. Oh, Atlanta's the worst. The worst. The worst, Jerry, the worst. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a, I have a, we we did some work in Atlanta recently, and um, I did an analysis of jobs in the, in the region, and, and Interstate 20 basically bisects the region as a whole, right, north and, between north and south. So if you look at all the jobs, 77% of all jobs are north of I-20 in Atlanta, in the region. Wow. And 74% of low-wage jobs are north of I-20. Now, and where is, Atlanta, of, where is Atlanta in relation to I-20? I-20 itself bisects the region into north and south. But when you say the region, so it bisects Atlanta itself? Yeah, Atlanta itself, but also just the region as Mm -hmm. a whole. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes sense for there to be job concentration. Concentration, yes, but all jobs, 77% of all jobs are north of I-20 in the region, all jobs. And if you look at the residential location of those workers, 40% of low-wage workers 
live south of I-20. Mm-hmm. So 74% of low-wage jobs are north of I-20. 40% of low-wage workers live south of I-20. That's kind of a disparity. So 74% of low-wage jobs are north, and 60% of low-wage workers live north. Yeah. Doesn't sound as bad when you put it that way. <laughs> I know, but it looks bad on this chart hmm. that I made. <laughs> um, I mean, just the fact that even the fact that 77%, 81% of high-wage jobs are, are north and 69% of high-wage workers live up there. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the same. But like basically all the jobs are on the north side of Atlanta and a lot of low-income folks live on the south side. That's basically the point. Wouldn't you find similar numbers for most cities? Nope. Really? I don't think so. It's not that it's not that big. Anything else to say about the Atlanta Braves new entertainment complex? Now the entertainment <laughs> complex itself isn't going to be taxpayer funded, right? No, it's it's the they want to make money off of it, right? but they're using the Brave Stadium as a, basically a primer to prime the pump on their development. That they're going so, to make money on. Right. So the taxpayers are going to pay for the, for, the, for the spark, and they get to get all the benefits of the development. You know, like that's the, that's the whole thing of this value capture movement, right? People want to capture the value that taxpayers, you know, put into, put into these big investments, and they want to get something back from it. And um, this seems like there's not going to be much value capture. The value capture is going to happen to uh, the Braves themselves. But value capture is supposed to work the other way, where there's a, a public investment and then and then you capture the value that private merchants make off of it so that they help pay back that public investment. Yes and no. I mean, it depends on what, what kind of value you're trying to capture. Value capture isn't necessarily, though, going to pay for everything because everybody wants that money. Right. Um, that's what... But, it, but it's not capturing the value and putting it back into private hands... The, no, idea, it's, it's the idea is to the pay back into, the right, public for, investment. Yeah, for a public project or an investment. But the Braves are or just, just... Or or make, you know, that value created go back into the just like the public hands in general. So it might even go back to the general fund. So, I mean, the whole thing of economic development, when people say economic development, which is kind of a murky term itself, but, you know, when you're, you're expecting development to happen and you prime the pump for some of this development to happen, you expect the taxes to go up so the, the general public gets money back in that sense. Right. Well, the Braves want to capture all the value for themselves. Yep. Well, should we move on? What's next? Oh, so this German town that abolished traffic signals. And so the the Dutch do this too, some, right? That they have these kind of shared streets? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Woodruffs. Same as my studio. Well, Um, then maybe you should be the one to explain it. (laughs) Have you you ever seen one in, in the flesh? I have not seen well a Woonerf, yes, I've seen a Woonerf. But a, uh, one of these shared streets that just sort of, of takes away all sort of regulatory markings and signals and just says, "You guys all just figure it out." I have not. Um, you know, this was kind of pioneered by Hans Monderman, uh, who unfortunately passed away back in I think in 2008. But basically, it, his kind of theory was that if you take away all of the traffic signals and all of the markings and everything, and just kind of made the spaces shared, then everybody would be more pay more attention to what everybody else is doing rather than just being led around by the signs. You know, this and this sounds enough like vehicular cycling that it sort of gets my back up a little bit. <laughs> but I think that that's probably not the right reaction because when I when I see it when I see this video, it it looks great and it looks like it makes a lot of sense. Well. 
So maybe you should explain vehicular cycling. Oh, well, vehicular cycling is the idea that it's safest just to bike like any other moving vehicle on the street and that, that separated infrastructure actually makes cyclists less safe. Oh, uh, well, we could talk about that on day, I'm sure. Um, but this is shared space for everybody, right? This is pedestrians, this is cyclists, this is cars. So the cars actually have to pay, you know, in traffic in a street that's like a road, right? You're going to be amongst cars that are the dominant species of that of that, of that uh, ecosystem. But in these in this situation, everything is equal, right? So the pavers uh, make it so that the people walking feel the same as the people bicycling, and the tr- people driving are not necessarily the kings of the ecosystem. So they can't bully everybody around, which it sounds like in vehicular cycling is possible for the vehicles to bully the cyclists. Well, I but, think part of the thing with vehicular cycling is that if the idea is just that you're throwing bicyclists into regular traffic, you're never going to have a lot of cyclists there. And that in order for there to be a shared situation like this town in Germany, in order for that to work and be safe for all users, there need to be at least a critical mass of pedestrians and cyclists. Right. I'm all about critical mass of pedestrians and cyclists. I just think it, you know, I just think it makes sense because if you think about for example, if I'm like on my, you know, if I have my headphones on and I'm walking down my street to the bar station and I'm paying attention to the lights only and not to looking around at the traffic patterns and the people that are coming, then I'm a slave to the signs and not human nature. But if I know that there are no signs, right, and there's nothing to keep somebody from hitting me, then I'm going to turn my head left or right to see if there's a car coming before I cross the street. Um, does this put too much faith in people? Uh, I think we should have faith in people. But do you have faith in people to be good drivers? Well, if they know that they are, po- it's possible to hit somebody, yeah. I mean, if they're outside of that shared space, you know, if they're in that traffic sewer and they have the signs, they will listen and watch the signs. They're going to watch the red lights and the green lights. Because no one ever runs a red light. No, well, people do run red lights, obviously, because there's, well, as we talked about last time, there's apparently in, in Texas <laughs> there's been deaths every day for 13 years right. on the freeways. But, you know, I think, and that's in a high-speed vehicle as well. I mean, these spaces are not likely to be high-speed, and the people are going to be a little bit more careful in their cars. I mean, have you ever driven down a street that um, is, you know, where kids are playing? It's a kind of a small neighborhood street. You know that things are going on. There's trees that are close to the street. You, you tend to take it a little slower if you know. Well, I do because I'm a nice person. <laughs> But I don't well, trust. I, I don't trust everybody. But but well, you're right. I mean, all all traffic calming treatments can potentially make. I mean, the reason that that kind of traditional traffic engineers say that streets should be wide and have no trees around them, you know, straight and no curves and all of that, is that they're not trusting drivers. And what traffic calming does is trust drivers and say. We know that you're going to slow down if we put in this roundabout or this speed hump or these trees or this median or this crosswalk or whatever. And the fact is that they do. Taking away all markings and signals makes me a little bit nervous. I, but maybe it's just because I'm, I'm from a place where the default is that the car is king and that in a place that has a different ethic, it would feel really different to share space with cars. Well, also here, I think it's a bit more punitive if you kill somebody with your car, right? or if you hurt somebody with the vehicle. They're also safer in general. 
I'm trying to think. We just did a story, or did I read a story, or was it a story about um, the, that in the Netherlands, the I think that Angie wrote this story, that the assumption is in the Netherlands that the driver was at fault. And it's not like, well, the cyclist was going against traffic. It's like, yes, the cyclist was going against traffic, and you were in a car, and a car is far more dangerous. And how did you not avoid this accident, even with the cyclist going against traffic? And so it's a very high bar. The, the expectation or the assumption is that the person in the most dangerous vehicle needs to be the most careful. And, yeah. and that, and that a, a crash is their fault because they're the one that's driving around in this dangerous vehicle and that, that it needed to be something that was so completely outside of their power to avoid in order for them not to be found at fault, criminally at fault. You know, you were talking about streets and you don't trust people and traffic engineers don't trust people. I think traffic engineers do trust people and they were pushing people to go faster. They designed these streets for a certain speed. Um, actually, they designed them over the speed limit of the street. And they were trusting not- people to go the speed limit even though they designed it for a much higher yeah, Velocity. like mm-hmm. uh, interstate highways are designed for, you know, some ridiculous speed, like, you know, 100 miles an hour or whatever. But, you know, pe- they want people to go 65, but that never happens. They hope that people will. They hope instead of, you know, they don't build the, the roads for, for that speed. They hope because they're worried about safety, quote unquote safety, because they know that people are going to break the law. Uh, anything else to say about the Germantown? Oh, one thing that I liked about it is that it's all sort of landscaped like more like a sidewalk. It has the kind of brick pavers um, on the on the street on the on the road, and so you know at least for my frame of reference, I mostly see those on pedestrian space, um, pedestrian malls or sidewalks, and so. I think that to drive on something like that would make you feel like that your car is a guest in this otherwise pedestrian-dominated space that is designed for people walking and biking and that you need to kind of operate with caution. Yeah, and it feels weird to your car to drive fast in there because it's not a flat, you know. It's like pulling your your airport bag over, you know, tiles, you know, that like, I feel like I'm annoying everybody. I know. Every time they repave a street in D.C., part of me is wishing that they would redo it in cobblestone. Then people would drive much slower. People would drive much slower, and nobody would wear high heels. I hate high heels. (laughs) You know, I hate high heels as a pedestrian rights activist. (laughs) I'm not going to go there. (laughs) Why not? That's your fight to wage. You're not going to be in solidarity with your your female sistren? I just know that there's people that like to wear high heels. In the Bay Area? Yeah, even in the Bay Area. I'm not. I don't wear high heels, so I can't. You know, I, I don't know if I no. should comment on that. Yeah, high heels. I. I mean, I believe that high heels are, first of all, a product of of a car dominated society where you're not expected to walk anywhere. But second of all, I believe that they are specifically designed to keep women from being able to run away from predators. <laughs> I am not kidding about this. I am not kidding about this. I think that they're an absolute tool of female subjugation and car domination. And that is why they should be outlawed. I see. And that is why all of our streets should be cobblestone. So you you don't have to outlaw them by legislation. You outlaw them by... by by cobblestone. Outlawed by, outlawed by cobblestone. Outlawed by cobblestone. Although cobblestone will just make them more uncomfortable and they're already hideously uncomfortable and people wear them all the time. So Some, some people think they're comfortable, I guess. No, they don't. Anyone yeah, who I mean, says that I've, is lying. Compared to sneakers, they do not think it's comfortable. There's nothing well, comfortable about them. The way, that, the way that you're walking is not at all the way 
your feet were designed to walk. No, of or your course body. not, and it's, and it's bad for your your Achilles tendon and everything. But and your posture uh, and your back. I'm just go. I'm just going off of what people have told me. Again, I don't wear them. I'm just going off what my my friends have told me. Um, that was a slight detour. <laughs> Is that going to be on the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I haven't been able to get my my hatred toward high heels into a blog post yet, so here it is. It's in the podcast. You're welcome. There you go. Um, so, Jeff, have you noticed that most cities are shaped like wedding cakes? Um, no, because wedding cakes are all different. <laughs> well, I then that story doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I understand what it means. So. Stephen Smith. It means that the center is much higher than the, than the outside. Right. Um, I have not noticed that, but I've heard um, from articles in Next City written by <laughs> Smith, otherwise known as market urbanism. Right. That places such as Moscow and Beijing are differently formed than places like Paris or. New York City or most North American cities. But you see that in San Francisco, that you have tall buildings in the center, and and as you go out from downtown and then as you go out of the city, the densities and the heights shrink. Yes. So it's Um, like a wedding cake. Right, exactly. They shrink on the outside. But what happens when you eat it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm pretty sure you're supposed to just shove your spouse's face in it. So I'm pretty sure that that's what people do when they get to San Francisco. They shove their faces in the city. Yeah. Yeah, kind of, I guess, yeah. Okay, so the metaphor doesn't work on all levels. <laughs> Mostly on Pier 39. No, it makes a lot of sense. But basically what, what the article is saying and what the research is saying is that places that um, grew up around a command economy or you know a socialist economy, a communist economy, they didn't replace the buildings downtown because the values wouldn't, wouldn't go higher. And so as you go from downtown where the buildings didn't need to be replaced because of market value, you'd get higher buildings as you moved further out. So in a place like Moscow, you have a, a somewhat lower density in the center and you have a higher density on the outside as population pressure has pushed the buildings to go higher and higher and get more dense. But you have Sounds like Cobb County. Kind of like Cobb County. <laughs> But you have this pressure where a lot of the employment, say, in Moscow is downtown, and a lot of the residents in these dense places are outside of town, and so you get massive congestion on the subway system. Mm-hmm. Um, At least it's on the subway system. Imagine if they were trying to do all that driving. Well, I'm sure there's lots of driving, too, but a lot of it's on the subway. Yeah. And it has a really high uh, ridership, too. But now they're trying to think about, well, how do we fix this problem? Because we have so much commute from the outside to the inside, they're trying to think about how to put employment outside of the city, not in the center of the city, because they were worried about that congestion issue on the subway. So it's kind of an interesting kind of push um, the opposite direction of the U.S., where we we try to you know densify the city so that we can pull from the suburbs and get more people to take transit. This way is kind of the opposite. You're getting people, you want to have them on a, on a reverse commute because it's going to be actually beneficial for the system. And, and in the United States, it's like that, too. I'm sure that if you could get a lot of people reverse commuting. Um, there's enough reverse commuting at this point in D.C. that it's hardly even a reverse. I mean, there's oh, so – well, there's a lot of defense contractors in northern Virginia. Oh, right. um, and there's this whole technology corridor in Maryland along 270, and so there's traffic both ways. Maybe San Francisco is a better example. When I ride BART to Oakland in the morning, everybody gets off in Embarcadero, and then I have a seat to myself for the rest of the ride. Nice. 
Well, I mean, DC has a similar non-wedding cake shape to some extent because we have maybe like a command economy. We have the L'Enfant regulations on height that have right. been under scrutiny in recent days. And, and so when you go outside of the district, you know, you get into Roslyn and Bethesda that have some taller towers. And it gives the, and Silver Spring as well, and it kind of gives the feeling that those places in a way are more urban than the city center. But the city center does have, they, we just have these huge marble monolithic buildings that certainly house a lot of people. Um, I think the density right. is there in the city, but in terms of the height, um, that's more in the suburbs. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's market pressure because you guys do have that regulation in the center, um, but it pushes out some of that employment and some of that density outside, which you know yeah. could be beneficial, especially if it's along the metro corridor, like the Roslyn-Boston corridor, mm-hmm. um, where you do get those, those you know, downtown-ish type places. In Maryland as well, it's along the metro. Rockville has a sort of town center, although that's not right near the metro. Some of these places are still off from the metro. But in Bethesda, the development is right near the metro, in Silver Spring, right near the metro. So um, most of those very urban, suburban places around D.C. are are aligned with the metro. Yeah. I wonder what would have happened if D.C. didn't have a height limit. Would it be just like every other city? Or would it be, you know, probably so, I guess. People would be developing higher and higher. I think that, that to some extent we do have this federal architecture, and I don't know that just because we could build skyscrapers that we would. I think that there is some architecture that's unique to the nation's capital in that way, and I don't know that the height is the only reason that we don't have kind of glass and steel skyscrapers alongside those federal buildings. Um Probably my mentioning skyscrapers here is not helpful because I think that that's the fear is that as soon as you release the height limit, everybody's going to be building up into the sky, and the goal is just to to build a little bit higher. Yeah, so DC has a little bit of what Stephen Smith is talking about, but not nearly as much in, as in these planned economies. It, it's not it's not such a bizarre concept either, and it's not just about central planning or regulations. I mean, a lot of it is just about the kind of squeamishness that so many developers have about brownfield development. And that, I mean, that in a way, that kind of um, expanding circle is what's been happening in our cities for decades, that, that yeah. people would rather not deal with the hassle of building in a place that's already um, highly developed or has been developed. So they just kind of go out where there's nothing and just start building there. Well, I think I think it's more than that, actually. I think it has to do with zoning codes in the United States. Um, looking at um, San Francisco or even in New York City, before zoning codes existed, you got this kind of redevelopment based on densities that made sense for the population um, to keep people connected. But after the zoning codes, you get these kind of artificially low um, zoning pallets of you know single-family homes that probably could redevelop if they were given a chance, but now they're stuck in the ether, right? They're stuck in the zoning code. So you see that as a restriction that we have in the United States. So that is, is a, sort of a central planning problem. It is a central planning problem. But but the problem is the problem is, is the people that complain about central planning don't ever complain about the zoning code that, that governs their neighborhood. Right, right. You know, nobody likes change is the big thing. There's a, there's a, there's a redevelopment project kind of around the corner from my house, and the project that, that the developer wants is the same height as all the buildings around it, 
but apparently the parking is not enough for the neighbors. <laughs> They're worried that all the parking spaces in the neighborhood are going to get taken up by these people that are moving in. And it's like we can't make the city this precious place that can't be changed. Ever. Yeah. Can, can I talk more about my block? Yeah, sure. So um, they there was a... So it's all row houses except this one house that's sort of an old Georgian mansion um, that takes up the space of pretty much two row houses. I'm sure it was, you know, the plantation house way back in the day, and then it was a daycare, and then um, soon after I moved in, they were redeveloping it, and it uh, recently opened and is an eight-unit condo building. And one of our neighbors was sort of going up and down the street trying to foment rebellion about it because they were only building five parking spaces for the eight units. And he was really worried about street parking. And my partner asked him, well, don't you have parking spaces behind your house? And he said, yes, but we park our boat there. (laughs) (laughs) And we just said, you know, that's kind of not our problem. But as it turns out, of these five parking spaces for this eight-unit condo building, two or I think three of them are actually rented out. There's so little car ownership among the people who own these condo units Mm -hmm. that there's excess, and they actually end up renting out those spaces. Yeah. So it's actually taken parking off of the street. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. (laughs) Give me a miracle. Um, That kind of brings us to the next story, I think, because if you think about all these people that go out, they have long commutes and then they come back. And in my neighborhood, there's a lot of complaints about driving around the block to try to find a space when you finally got back from your long commute. Yeah. Um, Then, you know, you're spending about 20 minutes, which Donald Shoup, that's why he believes in market pricing because, you know, people shouldn't be circling the block looking for over and over and over again creates traffic, right? right? But people spend a lot of time commuting back from work and it takes away from our social capital and our, our ability to engage in political discussions after or be engaged in the community. Part um, of what I found interesting about that was that, that the amount of time that people spend at work doesn't correlate with lower... Uh, political engagement, although I would think that work can be draining as well, but that, that the commute is such a draining and, and enervating part of somebody's day that when they're finished with that, with a long commute, they're just done and they're not going out to community meetings and they're not engaging on that civic and political level. It's such a disturbing trend. I mean, there's so much stacked against poor people, low-income people, taking any kind of political power in this country and to have one more thing that's, you know, just bad transportation infrastructure and job sprawl and the kind of things that you were talking about in Atlanta where there's this huge geographic disconnect between where low-income people live and work, mm-hmm. that it's just one more thing that keeps keeps people down in our society and one of these really kind of hidden and insidious things. I think another thing with this story, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but um, our work in general drains us to a certain extent. I think that a lot of folks are working really hard during the day to, to kind of just keep, make ends meet. And but they did find that this was a much more significant factor than time spent at work. Yeah. So one more reason not to sign up for a long commute, if you can avoid it. Yep, totally. Um, those people should commute on their bikes, though. They would have such a different experience. <laughs> I'll take the train. Yeah. <laughs> that way I can play my Plants vs. Zombies. It's true. I don't love seeing people riding their bikes down the street looking at their phones. 
<laughs> I don't see it that often. And and the people who do it seem like they really know what they're doing. I can't do it. It's not something I want to try either. If I'm biking, I'm biking. If I'm if I'm on the train though, I, and I got a seat, then I'm gonna be checking my email or playing my games. Like know, everybody my, else. My Angry Birds or my or my Plants vs Zombies. Yeah, like everybody else. You know, I I think people on the bus do want to give pregnant women and senior citizens and people with disabilities, all those folks, a seat. They do have that ethic, but everybody's looking down at their phones, and so they just don't notice when somebody gets on that needs a seat more than you do. And so you can just kind of stand there, like in labor, (laughs) and nobody's going to notice and give you their seat because they're doing, you know, angry birds or whatever. Well, there was that story in the Bay Area where nobody saw this guy that shot somebody else yeah. Getting off a bus, right? Yeah. They're all buried in their phones. That's that was crazy. like two weeks ago, right? Yeah, it was, and I and I'm I'm worried about that. I actually, I try to look up from time to time, <laughs> even if I'm playing a game, just to kind of get my surroundings. And but it's hard, especially when you get engrossed in a in a game. Yeah, transit, you know, forces you into these um, very social situations, and that you're in society. But people do their best to to remove any social aspect. Yeah, or they just don't know any better either. Like, um, there were some kids that wouldn't give their seat up to a, an older lady, or it was a pregnant lady. I can't even remember, but they needed to give their seats up. They, the lady was standing there, and the, finally I just like, you guys need to get up. <laughs> it was clear that either they didn't know the rules or they just didn't want to follow the social rules. Yeah. So. Well, that's good of you, Jeff. I salute you. <laughs> I just there was like, are you guys kidding me? Come on. There was a great bus driver that um, while I was pregnant that, you know, I would just get on the bus and he would just be like, pregnant lady coming through, somebody give her a seat. <laughs> love that guy. Oh, man, I love those bus drivers and bar drivers that have, like, the really good voices, too. There yeah. was a guy, I used to ride the Pittsburgh Bay Point train to my grandma's house, and and so there was a guy who'd get on his best Barry White voice that he could, and he's like, Pittsburgh Bay Point train. <laughs> and you're like, that's awesome. Gives you a reason to go visit your grandma. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Another great podcast. Another great podcast. All right. Happy trails, Jeff. Happy trails, Tanya. Bye. Bye.